morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, May the 11th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. A new UN report says that most South Sudanese are deeply skeptical that the 2018 peace agreement can deliver stability in the world's youngest nation. Uh, the minimum requirement for peace has not been met, which is why, as you know today, people are still in protection of civilian fight. People are languishing in squalid refugee camps in Uganda and other neighboring countries. It's because the minimum of peace has not been met. And the World Health Organization is urging African governments to pay more attention to climate change as a health issue. Call on African governments to prioritize human well-being in every strategy and decision to hold new fossil fuel exploration and subsidies, to institute taxes for polluting firms, and to implement the WHO air quality guidelines. An international music festival that aims to put Kebedian and other African musicians in front of producers who can give their career a boost will come back next month after a two-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, a new UN report says that most South Sudanese are deeply skeptical that the 2018 peace agreement can deliver stability to the world's youngest nation. Many worry that the country may be heading back into conflict. The experts pointed to political disputes between former rivals now leading the government, President Salva Kiir and Vice President Riek Machar, as one of the main causes for the gridlock in the country's political and economic development. In the report to the UN Security Council, the panel of experts monitoring sanctions on South Sudan say that warnings about the agreement's prospects from civilians and many political, military and civil society leaders have grown more urgent as the unity of key opposition signatories has, quote, frayed and outside deals have proliferated. And to understand better some of the dynamics impeding peace in South Sudan, I reached Dr. Henry Lejukole, the coordinator of the U.S. South Sudanese academics and professionals. I started off by asking him if there had been any areas of progress in the country that were a result of the 2018 peace agreement. If you ask me about the 2018 agreement, I would say none. Uh, the agreement was designed to try to uh, resolve the problem. And number one would be to deliver peace. Uh, number two would be to deliver some specific content of some things that need to be done during the transition. Uh, but so far, uh, the implementation of that agreement has dragged on. Uh, the agreement itself was not so good. That's why some people objected to it. It had a lot of holes in it. It was actually meant to empower Kiel and to undermine the opposition, and exactly that has played out. Uh, he's not intent on implementing it. And on the other hand, the opposition is not focused on calling in him out. And so the focus of that agreement until now really has been on dishing out jobs but not on implementing the purpose on which the agreement was intended for. Mm. And so because of that... 
And what would you say are some of the main reasons why the 2018 peace agreement has not been fully implemented three and a half years later? Given all the work that they put into it, what are some of the reasons why it has not been fully or successfully implemented yet? You see, there are political and tribal intrigues behind this conflict of South Sudan. The major parties uh, to this peace that was obtained by the liberation of South Sudan are basically two, uh, those led by Selva Kiir and those led by Riyadh Machar. And I think each one has been gaining for domination of power. And when the chance came for South Sudan to go into elections in 2015, this rivalry surfaced. And obviously, uh, Kiir would like to continue his domination. Uh, and uh, Riyadh Machar thought it is his opportunity to take over power. And so uh, that rivalry and the gaming for power still underlies this current agreement. What I see is because of the failure is that Kiir is not intent on actually implementing the key elements of the agreement because he does not want another internal rivalry. He does not really want Ariak Machar and his, his forces to move in and then they can, and then for equal powers to coexist where problems could again crop up another time. And the mm-hmm. other dimensions that have come in too, which are economic, you know, I, I think there is a reason to perpetuate the conflict because there's a current looting of resources and mismanagement of uh, the national resources uh, to, to benefit individuals and they enjoy that in the midst of the war. Now, many political observers have said that uh, peace in South Sudan hinges on the ability of the government to unify the armies uh, or the forces representing the various uh, political factions. In, in fact, less than a month ago, President Kiel announced the creation of uh, a unified armed forces command. Would you agree that implementing this key provision of the 2018 peace agreement is the solution to achieving lasting peace in South Sudan? I don't know, and I don't think so. I mean, for people that have been really very observant and having the interest of the people in South Sudan, we have seen these things play out. The government will do one thing at a time just to confuse people and please them. Then it will take its time until it again pinches on another thing. And and most of this has been really the uh, <laughs> the doling out of jobs, okay? Now there's this pressure about the unification of the forces. So it does this initial thing that does not mean the forces will be uh, unified. When it actually gets unified is when we will know that it would have been implemented. But until then, I just think that this is part of the gimmickery that people should have gotten used to and, and should know exactly what is happening. Because I think bringing in the, 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 the opposition forces into the fold of the national army uh, is one of the number one things that probably the president is not uh, very happy and excited about. Um, and the opposition should, of course, already know that. Uh, from my point of view, they're very desperate for being accommodated in any way possible. And so I, I can tell you that nothing is going to happen. The current maneuver is to try to justify uh, elections. Uh, just to let the international community know that they, are, they have done something and possibly to receive support for conducting elections. But the, the, the end result of the elections are predictable. Any savvy person, any person with the interest of the people in had know that it will be for the purpose of bringing the same people back, period. 
That was Dr. Henry Lejukole, the coordinator for the U.S. South Sudanese Academics and Professionals. I reached him in the U.S. state of Ohio. The World Health Organization is urging African governments to pay more attention to climate change as a health issue. It says that 3 million people a year are dying as a result of increased climate-related events on the continent. Vicky Stark has more from Cape Town. Who's Regional Director for Africa, Dr. Machidiso Moeti, says the theme of World Health Day 2022, Our Planet, Our Health, could not be more timely. Another UWHO study has found that of the more than 2,000 public health events recorded in the African region in the decade up to 2021, more than half were climate-related. During the same period, the region experienced 25% more climate-related events compared to the previous decade. World Health Day is marked annually on April 7. Machidiso says the statistics serve as a strong reminder of the importance of being able to maintain the response to other health priorities in Africa, especially in the face of threats like COVID-19. The entire foundation of good health is in jeopardy, with increasingly severe climatic events deepening Africa's health crises. For example, our analysis found that waterborne diseases, mainly due to cholera outbreaks, accounted for 40% of climate-related health emergencies in the past 20 years. In Africa, diarrheal diseases are the third leading cause of death and illness in children younger than five, which could be preventable with safe drinking water, adequate sanitation and hygiene, and of course, vaccination. She urged governments to take immediate action and for funds to be made available to fight climate change. I'd like to take this opportunity to call on African governments to prioritize human well-being in every strategy and decision to hold new fossil fuel exploration and subsidies, to institute taxes for polluting firms, and to implement the WHO air quality guidelines, for example. Although Africa contributes the least to global warming, the continent bears a disproportionate burden of the consequences. The briefing also focused on the coronavirus, with the WHO saying so far there have been 11.5 million reported cases and 250,000 deaths on the continent. But Majadisa says a new analysis of other studies, which is now being reviewed, indicated that the true number of infections could be as much as 97 times higher than the number of reported confirmed cases. This suggests that more than two-thirds of all Africans have been exposed to the COVID-19 virus. Our analysis is clear evidence of the continued significant circulation of the COVID-19 virus among the people on the continent. With this comes a heightened risk of more lethal variants that can overwhelm existing immunity. Machidiso says it's up to everyone to promote and support multi-sectoral interventions that address the threat of climate change while helping to better prepare African countries for future health shocks like the COVID-19 pandemic. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Two Zimbabwean reporters appeared in court this week following their arrest over the weekend for taking pictures inside a voting center where a by-election was being held. Columbus Mavonga reports from Harare. 
Blessed Mklanga and Chengeto Chidi, journalists from Alpha Media Holdings, were arrested in Chitungiza on Saturday for allegedly taking photos in a polling station during a by-election. News out of Zimbabwe said the pair were interviewing voters about a water crisis affecting a town on the outskirts of Harare. The Media Institute of Southern Africa, Misa Zimbabwe, immediately deployed lawyers to represent the journalists who were also charged with disorderly conduct. Nompilo Simanje is from the Media Watch Group, which has demanded that charges against the reporters be dropped. So while the matter is still pending, as Misa Zimbabwe, our position is that um, uh, we value media freedom um, and that journalists should be allowed to undertake um, their work without fear of arrest and without any potential for harassment and unjustifiable infringement. When President Emerson Munangagwa succeeded Robert Mugabe in 2017, Munangagwa promised to improve Zimbabwe's human rights record. Rafael Faranisi, the acting permanent secretary in Zimbabwe's Foreign Affairs Ministry, says the government will keep its word. I believe, and unashamedly so, that we have done a lot. Yes, there will be areas of deficits. Yes, there will be some challenges. And what we would wish for is for people to work with us. For those who have been watching closely, following closely developments in Zimbabwe, we are on that reform trajectory and it's not reversible. Rights abuses led to some Western countries like the United States imposing sanctions on Zimbabwe's leadership in 2003. So many people are watching the outcome of this case. Columbus Mavungam for VOA News, Arare, Zimbabwe. In Zambia, it has been over 20 years since the Access to Information Bill was drafted to allow the country's media to be regulated by an act of parliament. Journalists and media bodies say that once the bill is enacted, it will enable access to state information, which is vital in holding those public officials to account. And now, media practitioners in the country are calling on the government to enact the Access to Information Bill into law without delay. Elias Limwanya has more from Lusaka. In 2002, the Zambian government assured the media that it would allow them to operate independently by enacting the Access to Information Bill into law. 22 years later, the draft continues gathering dust in government offices awaiting parliamentary approval. The Media Liaison Committee, which has been spearheading the enactment of the bill, bemoans the delay, coupled with high cost of running a media outlet, does not inspire hope for a free press in Zambia. Marking this year's Press Freedom Day, Media Liaison Committee Chairperson Inokingoma reiterated that government must break its silence on the bill. As a media, of course we underwent several challenges under the previous regime. We have heard this time around several pronouncements from the current administration with regard to media freedom and development. However, we have not seen much that can give us hope because there is a lot that was promised that has not been fulfilled. The new Don government promised to enact the Access to Information Bill into law in the last sitting of Parliament, but that hasn't happened. Apart from delay to enact the bill into law, 
The landscape in which the media operates in Zambia has seen reintroduction of the value-added tax for each advert published. This chews away at the small profit made under difficult conditions such as COVID-19, which has seen the withdrawal of advertising by clients. Moreover, the media are constrained by the high cost of production for media products. There is also COVID-19. The pandemic worsened the situation as most media institutions suspended operations, while those that continued had to lay off some, some of their workers. Certainly, this is not a healthy situation and it does not support media development. The Zambian government, which boasts of creating a conducive environment for journalists, says the process to enact the bill has reached an advanced stage. Chushi Kasanda is Information and Media Minister. We recently held consultations with stakeholders to review the ATI bill. We are now in the process of resubmitting the bill to the Ministry of Justice, having completed incorporating the views we received from different stakeholders during our consultations. There is no excuse whatsoever for the media to flout their ethical and professional standards given the conducive atmosphere that now exists for the media to carry out their work freely and without any interference or instruction from anywhere and anyone. During the heated political campaigns in 2021, one of the promises made by the current administration was to guarantee media freedom once elected. Recently, the International Human Rights Commission released a report stating that media freedom was violated under the patriotic front regime of President Edgar Lungu. It's a situation media organizations in Zambia are hoping would not repeat itself under Haga Inde Hijirema. A committee of attorneys working for the Ministry of Justice as a committee will advise the government if the proposed bill needs to be revised because of anything that conflicts with the Constitution or Penal Code. If not, Parliament will likely approve the bill and the President will sign it. I'm Elias Limonia for VOA in Lusaka, Zambia. The International Day for Street Children, which is marked in April, is an occasion to debate an issue that is often ignored. In Uganda, activists say that the effects of COVID-19 has worsened the plight of street children, as reporter Mugume Davis Rwakarinji reports from Kampala, Uganda. Street children are one of the most vulnerable but yet invisible populations in the world. Alana Kembabazi, who works with local NGO, Initiative for Social and Economic Rights says their numbers have increased on the streets of Kampara and surrounding areas. It is worse. The issue of, how, of, of the children we are seeing on the streets are young. I'm talking five, six years. They're everywhere. They're persistent. Some of them have personally approached me. I don't even ask for money, but just like if I have like sweet bananas in my car or some porridge, or some soda, some food. So you get the sense that these are kids that are just really struggling to survive. She says a study by organization shows that COVID-19 has worsened abject poverty and contributed to many children living on streets. She says some parents encourage their children to beg for money so they can feed their families. Alana says hundreds of children have not been able to return the classroom despite schools opening after nearly two years. That is because they cannot afford school fees or scholastic materials. 
It is hard to know how many children live on streets in Uganda. But right activists say they number in the thousands. A 2018 survey conducted by NGOs Retrack and Hope for Justice in collaboration with Uganda's Ministry of Gender says there's about 12,000 street children in four districts of Iganga, Jinja, Mbale and Kampala. Demon Wamara is the executive director of Uganda Child Rights NGO Network. He says the children face a lot of challenges, including a lack of shelter and access to education. Uh, many of them are beaten up, are, are pushed away, they are sexually violated, and they do not have any form of accessing justice for the crimes that have been committed onto them. Because of their vulnerability state, they're exploited and paid way below what they should be, uh, what an ordinary person would be. Wamala also says some children's rights organizations are working with the government to integrate children with their families. It's our God-given duties as parents to protect and serve these children. For those in Africa, we need to build on our strong cultural, um, cultural, cu cultural base where no child was orphaned, no child would get lost, and the community, the clan, or the tribe would not care. Wamala says his organization is embarking on teaching parents about the basics of parenting. For home ought to be the safest place for a child. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Rwakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. Daybreak Africa continues, an international music festival that aims to put Kevedian and other African musicians in front of producers who can give their career a boost, will come back next month after a two-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Jose da Silva, who produced legendary Kevedian singer Cesaria Evora, says that the Atlantic Music Expo offers a chance for artists to support themselves and their families. Music is very important here for all the people because um, uh, you have a lot of people singing, a lot of people playing music, and uh, the music is uh, in our life all the time. Uh, it's what, uh, for us, music is uh, very important. Can you give me some specific examples of how they're using music to address development issues? The, the success of Cabrera worldwide, it's about music. All the tourism come to Cabrera, it's about our music. Uh, because uh, people uh, hear our artists and uh, want to come to, to the country. We have a music in uh, the church. All the Cabrians start uh, singing or playing in the church because uh, uh, our, our church uh, actually is a lot of music in the, the, the prayer. No? You have uh, music in all the restaurants, uh, all the clubs, all the... Now you have a lot of uh, artists from Cabrera living in the United States, living in uh, Europe, and uh, coming to Cabrera to perform, and uh, or you have a lot of uh, Cabrera artists going out of Cabrera to perform, uh, and uh, they they have all her, her family depending from her, and uh, this is very important. With the success of Cesaria, the Cabrera family changed. The family sometime uh, well, 14 years ago don't want to want her child to to be artist because he is is uh, not a good way and they prefer uh, he do uh, advocate or uh, to be or something but now uh, 
uh, all the all the family want to have the child to sing or to play music because now uh, all the family know the music it's uh, it's a work and it's possible music are there certain people talking about the role of culture in development at the expo are there certain musicians specifically in Verde who play a big uh, part for, for the expo uh, here in Verde, the, the idea it's the to transform Cabrera with the expo, we want to transform Cabrera in a platform for African music and uh, young music musicians uh, to export uh, music, you know. And uh, Cabrera is very good for this because you have a good good people, good uh, audience. That was Capvedian music producer Jose De Silva. He was speaking to VOA's Ricky Shryok. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vunga.